Uh, we are continuing our sermon series in the book of Genesis. So if you will turn with me to chapter 21, we're going to be in the entire chapter. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Someone would love to bring you a Bible. Genesis chapter 21, first book of the Bible. This isn't going to shock anyone, but growing up, just as I'm thinking about my own life, watching my children grow up, growing up's hard. It doesn't really matter what generation you grew up in. It's just hard to grow up. And I think one of the reasons that it's difficult to just grow up, and we all have these sort of growing pains, is that all of us from time to time just feel like outsiders, just feel strange, feel like we just kind of don't fit in. We could kind of all sit on the therapist's couch, and I'm guessing all of us could share story after story about what this looked like in our childhood as we traumatically experienced kind of outsider syndrome. But I remember this past week when I was in middle school and I was talking to this really cute girl, and I remember she just innocently and curiously just asked me, why is it that your voice is so much higher than all the other boys? It's crushing. I felt like an outsider. And we all do from heart to heim. Growing up is difficult. But as we grow up, it's still hard. There are still moments in our lives as we work, as we play, as we live our lives, where we feel like, ah, I just don't fit in. I just don't belong. I feel like a stranger in this world, in this experience, in this community. And some people experience this more than others, but you add to it a religious component. You add to it living a distinctly Christian life in Washington. You feel even more like an outsider, even more like a stranger, even more like an exile. I mean, Thanksgiving is coming up. Have you ever tried to, you got your huge family that comes over. Have you ever tried to pray before the meal and you know, Uncle Bob is like rolling his eyes. He's like, can't we just watch football? And why do you have to baptize the turkey in Jesus? Like, can we just, we feel this. And you instantly are reminded like, I'm an outsider. You don't have to live the Christian life long. You don't have to follow Christ for a long time to realize that from time to time, whether you're at your work or school, you're an outsider. Some of the most difficult and tragic experience that I as a pastor walk with you is when you're telling me these stories about what it's like to live on the playground or in the classroom or when you're in, you know, the lunchroom and all of a sudden a bad joke gets told or you try to explain what Christians think about this and you kind of the crowd turns on you and instantly you're reminded, I'm an, out, I'm an outsider. I'm a stranger. I'm an exile. From time to time, all of us feel like we just don't belong. Well, this fall, we're studying the life of Abraham in the book of Genesis. But if you were to turn over to the New Testament and you were to read that great chapter of faith in Hebrews, chapter 11, you'd read something interesting about Abraham. That Abraham, verse 13, was a stranger and an exile while on earth. Abraham, that towering giant 
of faith felt like, experienced life as an exile, life as a stranger, life feeling like he just didn't belong. And today I hope to explain why Abraham was in exile, and most importantly, I hope to explain why all of us feel like outsiders, exiles, and strangers as we live in this world. The big idea which should be behind me, this is my attempt to kind of summarize the argument of this text, is simply this. God is faithful to his word as we live as exiles in this world. And in many ways, there's kind of, we're going to go through this text in three parts, but it's about God's faithfulness and then also what it looks like to live out and experience God's faithfulness in this world where we are exiles. So turn with me to chapter 21. We're going to read the first seven verses. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. We'll stop there. So this text is divided up into kind of three parts. And I think you can see it if we were to read all of it and you'll see it. There's time differences. We, starting in verse 8, we're going to fast forward three years. And then, and then there's just like a complete scene change in verse 22. But to kind of set the stage, we can just kind of divide this into three scenes. I'm going to call the first scene God's faithfulness to a growing family. And then scene two is God's faithfulness to a desperate family. And then scene three is God's faithfulness to a strange family family. Verse 1 to 7 that I just read is God's faithfulness to a growing family. So since chapter 12, Abraham and Sarah have been waiting, waiting on pins and needles. God has promised you're going to have a son, but they've been waiting year after year, year after year, almost three decades, but no longer. Abraham and Sarah, after waiting 25 years, have a child. And Sarah's pretty old. She's 90 years old. That's, you know, I'm no scientist, but that's beyond the time when you naturally have children. And that's Sarah. She finally births a son. And then names that son Isaac, as God told Abraham and Sarah to name their son. So they name it Isaac, which literally means laughter. And they're laughing. I mean, this whole scene is hilarious, comical, laughable. It's a joyful experience. That's what Sarah says down in verse 6, doesn't she? She says, because of this child, God has turned her crying into laughing. And everyone who sees this, everyone in the community who's viewing this, who's walking with Sarah and Abraham through this, is laughing. Not in like mockery, but in enjoyment. Abraham and Sarah finally have a boy. Finally, 
this happens. And so they circumcise Isaac as God instructed them to do. I mean, it's all quite amazing. But what's interesting is we've been kind of waiting for this. Chapter after chapter after chapter, year after year after year, decade after decade. We've been waiting for this. As the story unfolds, you'd think everything would slow down and we'd have like 10 chapters on the birth of Isaac. But it just like comes, right? It's almost like anticlimactic. All of a sudden, Isaac has arrived. And we have no idea about any of the details related to the birth. We have no idea if Abraham's at a baseball game. We have no idea what it's like for a 90-year-old woman to give birth. I've got questions. There are no answers. There's all of these questions that we have, and it just comes and goes. And yet I really do think the first three verses, or particularly the first two verses, explain biblically and theologically all we need to know about this whole growing family and God's faithfulness to this growing family. So let me, let me read verse 1 and 2 and emphasize a, a phrase that hopefully you'll understand and hear God's point in all of this. Verse 1, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. So three times God makes something very, very clear, I hope to make clear as well, that as amazing as this child is, the thing we are to marvel at most is that God showers his family with his faithfulness. God did it. God said he would do it, and God did it. God's promises are true. The focus really isn't merely on this growing family. The focus is on God's faithfulness to this family. And this faithfulness that's on display in the birth of Isaac took 25 years in the making. But God, in his perfect timing, did what he said he would do. Abraham and Sarah. I mean, we've seen it over the last few uh, weeks. Sarah and Abraham do some blunders. They make some mistakes. Some bigger than others. And yet, every time... Abraham and Sarah hold Isaac. Every time they laugh with Isaac, every time they wrestle with Isaac, they are reminded of God's faithfulness to them. That when God said, I'm going to do it, God comes through on his word. And I wonder this morning if, if we need to remember that very lesson as well. I think sometimes we think about God's, God's word coming true, that God's word is faithfully true, and we think about it in abstract terms. Yes, yes, we, we, we theologically know that it's true. But, but here we have Abraham and Sarah personally, tangibly experiencing the faithfulness of God as God accomplishes what he says he's going to accomplish. I think we need more than just a nebulous sense that God and his, that God's will is going to come true. We need tangible, personal experiences of God's faithfulness to us. And there are a lot of ways that we can apply this, a lot of ways that we see God's faithfulness in our own personal lives. But I think so often, uh, more often than not, what we do is we just look at God's faithfulness to us personally, individually, which is a good thing. But I think God's faithfulness is on display most right here in this room. 
the very thing that we're doing right here. If you want to see God's faithfulness on display, don't just look personally and individually. Look communally and corporately. As God builds his church, as a God unites his church, as God sends his church on a mission to proclaim the lordship of Christ over all of life, God's faithfulness is on display in this room, in this church. Or just think about the two ordinances that God gives to the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those two uh, th- those two ordinances, those two sacraments are, simply put, a display of God's faithfulness to us. Baptism is God's display of faithfulness to continue to save people and bring them into his church. And the Lord's Supper, which we're going to take in a little bit, is God's meal. It's God's meal to remind us to display his faithfulness to us as we remember that we have been united to Christ. And it's why we take it communally. We, we don't just take uh, the, the elements by ourselves because this is not just a time for us to have a personal moment with God. It is that, but it's more than that. This is a time for us to, to look around and to remember God's grace in each other's lives, that God didn't just save me, but he saved us and then united us together as a family to live out the mission of God to make disciples throughout all the world. God is faithful. He's faithful to his word, and that's scene one, God's faithfulness to this growing family. But now scene two, we see God's faithfulness displayed to a desperate family. That's verses eight to verse 21. Turn with me there to verse eight. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw that the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But Abraham said to A- but God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For though Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water of the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite of him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. Then the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not. For God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your arms, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Scene two, God's faithfulness to a desperate family. We know that it's a new scene because we like fast forward in the story about 
three years. Isaac is now weaned, and there is this great feast in celebration of the reality that Isaac is now weaned. But not everyone is enjoying the feast, are they? For 15 years, Ishmael was heir to Abraham's wealth. For 15 years, Ishmael had all of the attention of Abraham. For 15 years, Ishmael was the only child of Abraham. For 15 years, Ishmael was top dog. But with this feast, Ishmael now realizes something. That he's not the favorite son. He no longer will inherit Abraham's great wealth. In most royal families, there's an heir and a spare. Just think William and Harry. Well, here we have an heir and a spare. And in response to all of this, Ishmael, in his bitterness and his jealousy and his envy and his frustration and anger, him being passed over, Ishmael does something. He begins to mock Isaac. And Sarah can't take it, can, it, can she? she? She knows this is not going to end up good. Her son Isaac might even be in danger. We all know that mockery can end in murder. And so she tells Abraham that Hagar and Ishmael have to leave. And we read that Abraham was very disturbed. And we can put ourselves in Abraham's shoes. He obviously loved Ishmael. And so he was greatly saddened by this. And the only thing that actually comforted Abraham was that God came to him and said, it's going to be okay. So with that promise from God to bless Ishmael, Abraham says his goodbyes and Hagar and Ishmael leave. And they begin to wander in the desert of Beersheba and eventually they run out of water. And Ishmael looks like he's about to die and so Hagar puts him under a bush and she goes about 100 yards away because no mother wants to watch their son die. And so you just see the desperation of this moment. It reminds you of the desperation of the moment earlier in chapter 16 when Hagar and Ishmael, when Hagar's pregnant with Ishmael and they're out wandering. Desperate moment in chapter 16, another desperate moment in chapter 21. Well, eventually, God shows up. Here's the cries of Ishmael. God shows up and promises, I'm going to protect your family. I'm going to provide for your family. Back in Genesis 16, if you remember, there was a promise that God gave to Ishmael that he would turn Ishmael into a great nation, that he would bless Ishmael. That blessing, in one sense, is attached to Abraham's blessing. It's a distinct blessing, but it's still a blessing. And he says, right here, I have not forgotten my promises to you, Ishmael, to you, Hagar. That promise took 18 years, and it was now in jeopardy, and God said, I have not forgotten. I am faithful to you, just like I'm faithful to Isaac. And so... As God hears the cries of Ishmael, God provides, protects, directs this desperate family to water where they find life. God protects. God provides. God builds Ishmael into a, well, the beginnings of a great nation. That's how the scene ends, right? Ishmael 
grows, he becomes a skilled hunter, and he eventually finds a wife. He's beginning to build a family. So we see God's faithfulness as displayed in a growing family, specifically related to Isaac, and we see God's faithfulness even in Isaac. God's word of promise comes true. In many ways, verses 1 to 21 are linked by the blessing of God to these two sons. They're linked by a father. These two sons are linked by laughter. These two sons are linked in biology. These two sons are linked in many ways. But most importantly, the two sons are linked in God's faithfulness to them. Look look there at verse 20. Verse 20 says, God was with the boy, Ishmael. God was with Ishmael. God heard Ishmael's cry. God hears the cry of the desperate. Do you know that? In your desperation, you can cry out, and God hears the cry of the desperate. God is faithful in hearing the cries of the desperate. That's scene two, God's faithfulness to a desperate family. But there's one more scene. God's faithfulness to a strange family. And this really is, I think, the strangest part of this chapter. You're like, what in the world does verses 22 to 34 have anything to do with these two boys? I mean, it makes sense why you'd go Isaac, Ishmael, but verse 22 to verse 34 seems like it's out of place. (laughs) Hopefully, I can make an argument as to why, in some ways, verses 22 through verse 34 is really the key to unlock what God is speaking through this entire chapter. And here we see God's faithfulness, not just to a growing family, God's faithfulness not to a desperate family, but God's faithfulness to a strange family. Turn with me to verse 22. At that time, Abimelech and Pishkel, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I swear. When Abraham reproved, when, uh, Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know uh, who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewes of lambs, a flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore the place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Pisgah, the commander of his army, rose and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abimelech sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Last week, if you were here, we had an an entire chapter about Abimelech, this Philistine king in which Abraham is traveling and living in the land of this king. And once again, there's conflict. In chapter 20, Abraham and Abimelech have conflict related to Sarah. 
Now there's a different confrontation, and it has to do with water, a quite precious commodity in the world and in Abraham's day. Abraham evidently dug a well. I've never dug a well. I'm guessing it's hard to do. He dug a well. He claimed that well. He used that well. And then some of Abimelech's men came and seized that well. And so there's conflict over this well. Abimelech actually rides out in the midst of this conflict with his commander. This is like a war party. Like Abimelech is thinking he's going to war with Abraham. He thinks that's what's going to happen. But Abraham doesn't want to shed blood. Abraham wants a peaceful solution to all of this. And so Abraham gives Abimelech seven lambs. Basically saying, I want a truce. I want a peace offering. I'm going to give you seven of my lambs. And if you take it, it means that you are receiving the truth that this is my well. That I have claim over this well. Abimelech agrees. And Abraham takes the land and this well and the water. And in, resp- and in response, Abraham plants a tree near the well and then worships God in Beersheba, calling God the everlasting God. Now, you're like, great, cool detail. What in the world does that have to do with any of this? Well, just remember, if you, go, if you were to go back to Genesis 12, 15, and 17, when God kind of lays out his covenant with Abraham and what that covenant is going to mean, there were at least two large promises attached to that covenant. A seed and land. And here in chapter 21, Abraham receives the fulfillment of that first promise. Isaac is born, but he has not received the fulfillment of that second promise. Scene three ends drawing our attention to the fact that Abraham is dwelling with the Philistines. Did you notice twice the author wants to know Abraham is living with the Philistines. He's living amongst them. Genesis 21 ends with Abraham receiving the fulfillment of one promise, but not all of God's promises. Even Isaac, the son of promise, was born not in the promised land. I think sort of without scene three, we we just kind of go off into the sunset, story finished, happy ending, child born, mission accomplished, let's move on, celebrate, worship, praise band, come up. But that's not how life works in any generation. That's not Abraham's story. I don't think it's our story as well. Abraham's still living in conflict. He's still living in a land that he hasn't claimed as his. He's still awaiting the fulfillment of many of God's promises. The picture of chapter 21 is God's faithfulness about two of God's promises being fulfilled, Isaac and Ishmael, and God building them into nations with distinct destinies, but nevertheless God's faithfulness to them both. But God has not fulfilled his promise about a land. That's how Genesis 21 ends. Abraham is still a stranger. And the reason that Abraham is still a stranger is that God has not fulfilled all of his promises. That's why Abraham is called in Hebrews a stranger because he lives in between God's promises and their fulfillment. He has a son, but not the land. He has a child, but not the nation. He has a baby, but no grandchildren. He has the promised son, but not yet the promised savior. So Abraham's a stranger. 
And look what he does. He doesn't just like passively say, well, I'll just passively wait. He does something. He takes a seed and he plants a tree. And he does this not because he's a hippie from Oregon. He plants a tree purposefully as a sign that though this land is not yet his, one day it will be. He plants that seed of faith. That tree is a sign that he's saying, God's going to fulfill even this promise too. Maybe not in my life, but in my grandkids' life or my great-great-great-great-grandkids' life. God has been faithful to me related to Isaac. He will be faithful related to all of God's promises. That's what Abraham is saying in chapter 21. We could just kind of put words in Abraham's mouth and Abraham would be saying, God, you fulfilled your promise to provide me a son who will be a blessing to the nations. God, you did this, but there are many other blessings that you have not given me yet. But I trust you. I believe in your promises and I'm going to live like I believe in your promise. And as a sign that I'm living according to your promise, I'm going to plant this tree as a sign that I believe that you will accomplish what you say you're going to accomplish. That's what Abraham says. Do you realize that we live a long ways away from Abraham, but can say that those exact words, living post-resurrection of Jesus Christ? We can say a very similar thing. We can basically say, God, you fulfilled your promises to provide for me a son, namely Jesus Christ, who died and rescued and blessed the nations. God, you did this. You have fulfilled that promise, but you haven't fulfilled all of your promises, have you, God? You've given us lots of things, but we don't, you haven't consummated all of humanity. There's still darkness and sin and evil, brokenness. There's lots of things that you've not fully, finally conquered and consummated. Yes, you reign, God, but the world is awaiting new creation. And so we live. This is what we can all say. We live trusting that because you have fulfilled your promises in the past, because we've seen you fulfill so many promises, the promises that we haven't seen you fulfill, we will root ourselves in this community, in this church, root yourself in your promises as we await the fulfillment of all things. Can't we say the same thing that Abraham is basically saying here? Abraham, in this respect, is just like us, living in the gap. He lives in the wilderness, just like all of us, as strangers, living between the fulfillment of some of God's promises. That's all of us. We all have this in common with Abraham. We all live in the gap. And as we do, we experience what Abraham experienced. We feel like outsiders. We feel like strangers. We feel like we just don't belong. And the reason for Abraham is the same reason for us. It's quite simple. It's because we live between the echo of Eden and the haunting reality of heaven. And as we straddle those two realities, we don't feel like we belong. Because in the truest sense, we don't. We're not in glory land. When the lame will walk, when the mute will talk, when the blind will see, we're not yet in glory land. And so we march on, we march forward living between God's promises and their fulfillment, knowing that God will fulfill 
all of them, in our lifetime or in our death. God is faithful. He is bringing history to its fulfillment. The consummation of all things will take place at Christ's second coming. And when that happens, that feeling, that reality, that experience of feeling like you're a stranger will disappear. It has played its role. You will no longer be a stranger. But that's not our experience right now. Yes, the reign of sin is defeated in Christ, but the presence of sin still remains. Yes, death has lost its sting, but death is still a cruel reality. Yes, God has given us a home in this family, in this church, but we are brothers and sisters we have not yet met yet. Yes, God has united us with Christ, but we still have conflict in the world and in our hearts. Yes, God has justified us, but God has yet to glorify us. Yes, God has raised us up with Christ spiritually, but God has not raised us up with Christ physically. Yes, God has defeated darkness, but evil still lurks. Yes, if you are a Christian, you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, but we all stare in a mirror dimly. One day we will taste and experience that goodness face to face. It's hard to live as strangers in this world, to feel like you're in exile, to feel like you just don't belong. And brothers and sisters, I don't know how to break it to you other than the reality is that's because we don't belong. Abraham experienced this. We experienced this. That feeling exists because God has not fulfilled all of his promises yet, but he will. And when he does, we will live in the new creation, not as strangers or exiles, not as that feeling that we get when we just feel like we're on the outskirts, we will finally be home. And when that happens, it will be like nothing we've ever experienced. So march forward in faith. I don't know what it looks like. I don't think we all need to plant trees. That would be weird. But there is a sense in which we must live our lives rooted in this world, testifying that God will fulfill his promises. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful. As we look at your word, as we look at our lives, as we look in our world and we see so many of your promises have already been fulfilled. We're so grateful for that reality. And yet we know that some of your promises have yet to be fulfilled and we look forward to in faith for your son's return for justice to reign we pray in hope that you would persevere us we pray in hope that you would help us to encourage one another to root our lives in this community in this world in this church as a prophetic witness of jesus christ his rule and reign in our lives and his rule and reign in this world. We pray all that in your son's name. Amen.